Welcome to the Building Resilience Podcast, a show where we explore the world of sport and deconstruct the tools and ethos of world-class athletes to create growth and optimize business. I'm Noel Allnut, the CEO of Securo, and today on the show, we'll be talking to Australian International Rugby Union player, Richard Toms. Richard has a unique story in which he suffered serious injury post his sporting career. He was always one of the toughest players on the field, and now years later, that toughness has helped him to strive for rehabilitation, as well as to set up the Guns Out Spinal Foundation. Please enjoy this episode of the Building Resilience Podcast. Building Resilience Podcast. Richard Toms, welcome to the Building Resilience Podcast. My pleasure, Noel. It's a pleasure to join you and uh, hopefully I can add some pearls. Oh, thank you very much. Really appreciate you uh, you being on the show today. Where we normally start with our guests is really at the start. Um, you had a very good rugby career and, and made it to the Wallabies, but I'd love to know about a young Richard Toms and, and how, how you came towards be, becoming a professional rugby player. Mate, I, uh, I grew up in the in country New South Wales um, in a place called Gunnada. It's a place of 8,000 people in uh, northwest New South Wales. And... Um, I was there until 10. It was a great upbringing. I had I got three older brothers, uh, all of us within five years. So we could uh, we knocked around quite heavily together when it came to uh, backyard games and backyard fights and and things like that. And and uh, being the youngest of four, I always had to battle my way against the older older brothers, um, which we yeah, certainly added to, to a bit of my fighting spirit. <laughs> I bet. Uh, I moved to Port Macquarie and, uh, and and all this time I was playing rugby league, changed schools and went to Armadale, the Armadale School, and um, changed schools and uh, started rugby union about year 11 and 12. Went on, went on a tour with my school to follow the 1984 Wallabies, who were very successful in the UK with the Ellers and whatnot, and that probably ignited my my passion for rugby union and uh, and the the spur on to maybe look at the Wallabies because I was I was making quite a few representative sides back in my school days and it was um, and it sort of looked like something worth worth pursuing. So so you have that fighting spirit from from being part of a family with four boys and the, the, that having to survive, uh, not just thrive at that age. Um, what was your kind of mindset that you believe that got you to the top of the game? What would, what was the kind of key things that you that you drew down upon? Well, being the youngest of those four boys, I, I, I recall that, you know, you, you, whilst you're young, you've still got a bit of testosterone going around and, and you weren't going to be pushed around. And, um, you know, having the four older brothers, I, I remember my, my eldest brother was, you know, obviously, I guess, a, a stronger and a more dominant and everything like this. And we used to play bull rush in the backyard and he'd push off the back fence and get about a five-metre run up before he hit the, the playing arena and he'd just charge straight through and, and no one would get in his way. And I don't know, eventually it got, came time where someone had to get in his way and that was me. And he'd charge, he'd push off the back fence, get that five-metre run up, and then he'd hit the plane arena and, and he'd just run straight, Maori sidestep type thing. And I, and I just <laughs> I just got in front of him and, and just did a copy book tackle, you know, bang, 
took him nice and around the legs, shoulders, went with him down the ground he went. And the next next couple of times uh, did the same thing. And then from then on, he had to actually learn to sidestep because it, his bullying wouldn't work. Uh, and that's sort of, so that, that was my first memory of just going, standing up and going, right, well, you know, if you if you, if you want to if you want to be the top of the tree, you got to knock over the top tree, the top of the tree. So, um, my brother was was the, was the target back then, and from then on, I uh, as a young bloke, I always wanted to be top of the tree, and I, I worked hard just in the backyard with skills as a young bloke. I wasn't training to be fit, but just the work I was doing in the backyard with the ball and with brothers. Certainly made me strong and fit and healthy and uh, and, and and right for the game. And I, you know, I, was, I found I certainly at school level I was quite dominant. And you then dominated it through school and going up through the grades. And then you you get to pull on the Wallabies jersey. Um, it's probably a long way from uh, the dunk tackling your brother in the backyard. What was that feeling like putting on the green and gold? Mate, it was fantastic. Obviously, uh, um, a lot of work goes into it. Now, I now let me uh, let me admit that um, my first tour was in 1988. So I'm, I finished school in '85. Uh, then I made my first Wallaby tour in 1988. Um, I was 20, and to be honest. I think it was too early for me on a, on a maturity side of things, on a mental, emotional maturity side. Um, physically, obviously, if, if, if the selectors thought I could do it at that time, physically I, I was, must have been okay. But emotion, and, and I, I could play okay, but emotionally I wasn't ready for it. I, I sort of, I like to still have my, fun off the field and still thought I could have them fun off the field. So I was burning candles at both ends. And my first tour with the Wallabies was was a learning experience. Um, and then I actually got bumped out of the Wallabies and out of the Queensland side for the following year because I was probably a bit too uh, probably a bit too full of myself. Maybe I, I think that's that, that could be that could be part of it. Um, and then uh, it took another two years before I got back into the Wallabies, and that was 1991 for the World Cup squad, and uh, that took a lot of hard work and a lot of uh, a lot of more discipline on myself as far as emotionally and and emotional intelligence. And um, it, it came through, but it took a few years to get it and to realise that's what I needed. Yeah, we often hear with whether it's people coming back from injury or uh, a lot of great cricketers and sports people and rugby players have been dropped and they play their best years after not quite getting there the first time round. Could you just delve into that a little bit in terms of what you did and how you realised that you had to change the way that you were going about the game and, and your mindset in order to, to get back to the top level? Look, I, I, I realised that um, at the probably after that Wallaby tour and then uh, getting dropped for for Queensland and, and being on the outer, um, that if I wanted to get back in, so I had to change my attitude and a few things, and uh, and, and it was attitude I needed to change. Um, and 
my application was okay, but it certainly needed, it probably could have done with more. And, and so therefore I just focused on, on a more application uh, on, on a physical side of things and, and my skill set. But emotionally, um, I, I got myself more prepared for being overlooked because I'd never been overlooked, never been dropped before. Um, being overlooked, so so I was I was better prepared for that. Albeit, it's not something I, I ever got used to. And having to play second fiddle between Tim Horan and Jason Little for for uh, best part of you know eight or nine years. Um, I got used to being overlooked, albeit I never liked it. And I, and I always thought, I, in my mind, and because I was competing against those guys, I always had to think I'm better than them. And I was probably the only bloke in Australia that thought that. But if you're going to compete against them and, and you want their spot, you have to, you have to um, think you're better than them and, and, and think you played better than you know, Try to play better than them. Um, yeah. yeah, having that inner belief in order to uh, continue to thrive is so important. Um, and then being able to act out upon that um, and get up every morning in order to do it is critical if you're going to continue to grow. Well, I was, I was, um, I was spoken to from the uh, Wallaby coach in 1991 when during the World Cup when um, when we won our way put our through the pool matches. We'd won two of our two pool matches and there was a third pool match and I thought, for sure, this is my this is my run on time in the World Cup. And it was against Wales at, at Cardiff Farm Park. And um, I was overlooked for that match. I was very disappointed and the coach came and said to me, he said, look, I, um, you're not playing and I know if you're playing, you'd be playing at the top of your tree, top, top of your game. But the other two aren't playing well, and I want to play them into form. And it was like, well, why did you bring me on the tour in the first place if, if I was never going to get a run, you know? And, you know. and um, anyway, as it turned out, they played the, the two of them played the quarterfinals, semifinals, and the final. And Tim Horan got better and better, and in the final was the player of the match in the, in the World Cup final. And um, I have no grudge. I have no grudge to the fact that, you know, um, the coach made that decision. It would have been a hard decision. Um, but for the best part of the team, and I'm a team player, the best, best thing for the team was to get Tim up to full, you know, full fitness and, and full form. And he, and he did that and we won the final 12-6. And he played a crucial part in that final So. I have no grudge. I think, you know, it's, it's it's a part of the resilience game. Is that you know you get dropped and it's how you bounce back. And I bounced back quite a few times from being dropped. And um, I made my debut in 1992 after that World Cup, and uh, had played five tests after that. I was on the bench of a few, and and um, won a Bledisloe Cup. So. It was a good career. Yeah, very good career. One to be very proud of. Um, and then you went on to to play in the UK at Gloucester uh, for uh, for a good three seasons. Um, and again, I was reading that there's still in the folklore the uh, you you made the best centre pairing uh, that, that they've had to date. Talk me through some of your time in in the UK. Look, um, 
when I went to Gloucester, it was 1996-7 season. No, 1997-98 season. It was their first year of professional rugby. We just finished our first season of professional rugby in uh, in Australia, and um, then uh, went over there. Gloucester were known as a forward dominant club. They didn't produce backs; they just produced forwards, and that's it. They you know they just played ten man rugby. And so when they recruited, they recruited myself, Terry Fanaloa, who was a Samoan um, centre, uh, and Philippe Saint Andre, who was the most capped uh, French captain of all time um, and played about, I think he was up to 79 tests at that stage. So they recruited three outs or three backs in their back line and, um, and we clicked. We clicked really well, clicked very, we clicked instantly. And, um, and <laughs> Gloucester hadn't seen backs before, so <laughs> it wasn't hard to see, you know, as the best thing of everything. <laughs> but in, in saying that, we, we we immersed ourselves into the Gloucester community. Uh, there was a few players that came after me, a few Australian players that came after me who didn't. They just they, they went there as they were there as journeymen. I went there to immerse myself in the community. That was part of the part of my part of my plan to go over there. It's not just to play rugby; it was actually be a part of the a rugby community and the whole community as a whole. And um, I did that, and I loved my time at Gloucester, and and we we were reasonably successful without you know without dominating the scene, but it was a it was a better showing for Gloucester having a fifteen man game than a ten man game. Yeah, it's it's so important to immerse yourself in the community that you're in and inspire the the community as much as people on the pitch. Um, it, it's a common theme for a lot of Australian top sportsmen and women that they go and can uh, have that rite of passage, uh, playing in the playing in the leagues in the uh, in the UK, and they all come back with great stories because it's so different from playing in Australia because of that community feel. Well, as I say, you know, I I, I met a lot of a lot of the locals there, and one one, in, one guy in particular uh, resonates quite closely with me. He was a gentleman with a disability. Um, he'd been a policeman, but he, he, he developed cerebral palsy, and um, he uh, had quite a disability and had, had trouble. And he came to the games every week, and I befriended him and his family, etc. And I kept in touch with him. Whilst I've been over here and they keep me in touch with what's happening in Gloucester and we just, you know, exchange texts, you know, weekly or, you know, thereabout. Uh, and unfortunately he died only uh, probably a month or two back uh, from his from his illness. Um, what's that's done to me is that I now, I work for a charity called Hearts in Rugby Union and we, we look after... Um, players who are permanently injured themselves playing rugby union. And so we raise money for them and, and try to help them out with necessity necessitous items, right? Like maybe a vehicle so they can so they can get around easier and whatnot. Um, so what I've what I've uh, started pushing now is I'm trying to get the Waratahs and the Wallabies to connect with dis- disabled um, ex disabled rugby players. Um, so they can build up some sort of relationship, keep the keep the, the the injured and disabled rugby player in the game, keep their interest in it, but also 
show the other side of the spectrum for the from a for a player, so they can see you know what what players people like me in wheelchairs have to put up with on a daily basis and 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 cope and manage and build a relationship. It's a it's a great cause and a and an awesome charity. I was reading them about before the interview and um, yeah, hopefully we can share that with uh, some of our listeners as well to to get support. There's a lot of huge sports fans um, and having that uh, kind of purpose to go and, and help and inspire others is is awesome. Um, Richard, if you don't mind, we could just kind of pause on that around when you came back from uh, the UK and started playing um, with uh, with Curl Curl um, and sadly had an accident yourself, which has really drawn down on your resilience. Could you share some more around that? Yeah, look, um, you know, I came back from uh, the UK, had another rugby season here, and then I went, then had eight years of, you know, basically having children and rearing them up to you know, around that age, I guess. And then, um, I, you know, I, I just felt the urge I needed to get back into a team sport and, and, and bump around with blokes again. And so I took up soccer and um, and I played for 12 years um, before uh, I was called upon to, to go into goal. Um, and be the goalie, and unfortunately, within the first ten minutes of me being a goalie, um, I I suffered an injury from a, a overzealous striker who came in and attacked the ball whilst basically I was retrieving it. And as he tried to hurdle me, he, his knee knocked the knocked the front of my head and knocked me back in a whiplash onto my back, and and um, and basically fractured my C4, uh, spinal cord, and I have now an incomplete C4 spinal cord injury, which renders me a quadriplegic in a wheelchair. And the position I was in at the time taking the ball was a position I was in thousands of times in rugby, but because I knew they were always coming rugby, I, I could I could deal with it, and, but I didn't see this guy coming at all. And... Uh, Unfortunately, now I have a lifelong injury, and um, and my rugby, I guess, has has really prepared me for that because you know I, it's a knockback, it's knocked down, and and you got to get back up again. And each day, it's it's like that. The body, when it's when it's um, paralysed, it, it feels feels about twenty times the weight of a normal of your normal body because you can't lift parts. And uh, each day, just getting up out of bed is is challenging. And your commitment to recovery and rehabilitation is is inspiring. Um, can you talk me through some of the the ways in which you're uh, motivating yourself in order to aim to walk and and have as much of a normal life as possible? I think it's really in, impressive and inspiring. Look, it's just something which um, when I when I was first when I was first in hospital in in the ICU. Um, I was there for a week, and on about day five, which is day five after my accident, after they operated on my neck and they fused the three, four, and five, cervical three, four, and five vertebrae. Um, after they did that, they um, I was inside ICU, and the doctor came around. My surgeon came around on day four, and he did. You know, we had a chat about it, and all I wanted to know was what's my prognosis? What's my prognosis? He said, "Mate." We, you get your best results in the first 18 months, two years. 
we won't know until after that. And I just want to know, can I walk again? What, what's going to be happening? Nothing. Gave me nothing. It was very underwhelming. The next day, day five, his fellow surgeon came in. So this guy was the assisting surgeon. He came and saw me. He said, so how are you going? I said, well, oh, a bit underwhelmed after yesterday. I, you know, I don't know what the future holds. He said, yeah, well, look, I, I just want to do something. I want to do a little inspection and just see how things are, uh, are recovering. I said, okay. Anyway, he went through my body, he got down to my toes. He said, can you wiggle your toes? I said, well, I don't know. He said, well, give it a go. So I gave it a go and they wiggled. Mate, he just about jumped out of the room. He just about jumped <laughs> through the room. And I said, they're moving. I went, oh, yeah. He said, look, let me take, a, let me take some footage. So he took video footage and he came up. He said, look, they're moving. And I said, oh, yeah. He says, you'll walk again. I'm like, I, I, I just about got out of bed wow. then and started walking. I've, I felt that good. I felt like that was that was the window to my future. And uh, from then on, that was my that was the trigger which inspired me to just whenever I get an opportunity to do rehab, I'll take it. I'll do it. Whenever I got spared part in my day, I'll do something which is rehabbing me. Even if, even whilst I'm sitting here now, I'm, I'm there, I'm sort of interlocking my fingers and trying to push them out so they're straight. So I'm always doing that on my stomach just to flatten my hands because what they do, that's their natural thing. They naturally just, right. they naturally just curl in, you know. So I spend my time just straightening up. And that, by straightening them, obviously, I can grab things and pick them up. But the strength isn't, isn't strong. But that's all That's all part of every. I, you know, wherever I've got spare time, it's trying to better myself somehow. But that consistency, as you said, like every day, every gap in every day, trying to make progress. And um, I wish you all the best in, in your recovery. Your, your mindset is, like you say, is really inspiring to, to just be give that absolute commitment and work on the, the hope that it's it's possible? Well, I, I feel as though uh, from the day of my accident, I've given it 10 years, there'll be some sort of technology which will improve my life. My life. Um, I'm now three and a half years in. Uh, I've got to be in the best condition I am, can be, to uh, to realize the benefits of whatever that technology is so you know i've got another six and a half years then who knows mate i might be out there buddy running a marathon who knows (laughs) (laughs) well i hope i really hope you are well i want to be prepared to be able to do that technology allow me to do that you know so i just keep myself keep myself moving as best I can, so I'm ready, ready for that technology. Well, the technology advancements are happening so much in the rise of machine learning and artificial intelligence. Um, there's never been a better yeah. time to uh, to place a bet that technology will be something that will enable us to, to do huge amounts of rehabilitation and growth in the future. 100%. 100 that's, uh, that's how I see it. Richard, I've really enjoyed the conversation today. And, I'll close up with the question that we ask all of our guests to, to wrap up. And how does Richard Tom's 
describe resiliency? I, I just I see resilience as always confronting a situation and dealing with it, um, dealing with it on a positive note. I'm never really negative in my outlook, and um, whenever I see a situation which may be insurmountable, he's working out how to get around it and how to do something about it, and that's what I tend to do. That's what I tend to do on a daily basis is just get jump up and get on and get and get going. Get on with it and take action every day. That's exactly right. Richard, I appreciate you spending the time this morning to have a conversation with the Building Resilience podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to get to know you and um, hopefully our paths will cross again and I'll be sure to, to share more about the uh, the hearts and rugby and the great causes that you're, uh, that you're channeling your energy towards. Thank you. Hearts and Rugby Union is where I'm at um, to, to raise money for permanently injured rugby players. So any assistance we can give there, that'd be fantastic. Awesome. Thanks very much, Richard. Enjoy the rest of your day. Good on you, Noel. Thank you, buddy. Thanks for listening to the Building Resilience podcast. Make sure you hit subscribe or follow wherever you listen so you don't miss future episodes. Thanks to our guest today, Richard Toms. I appreciate your time. Please head to gunsout.org to find out more information. Thank you to our sponsor, Securo. If you'd like to know more about myself or Securo, you can head to securo.io. Securo, trust tomorrow. This podcast was made by Afternoon Sport Group. G'day, this is Tim Gilbert. And I'm Shane Lee. Together, we'll bring you the only podcast you'll need to get your daily dose of sport. With episodes out Monday to Friday afternoons, ready for you on your drive home. We've got a quick hit of sports headlines, keeping you up to date with the news you need to know. And we'll take a deep dive into the stuff you've always wanted to know. Cannot wait. Follow us on your podcast app so you don't miss it. We'll see you then.